0: History is filled with people who have pursued peace, and in and, and doing so, sometimes they've had to travel to uh, different continents and try to deal with struggles between nations. Sometimes they, they pursued peace by simply going across the city and, and, and dealing with difficulties between neighbors. And uh, Sometimes their pursuits make headlines in history, and sometimes their pursuits lead them to, to difficult and dangerous places. Sometimes their pursuits ha- have gotten their, their name in a history book, and they have shaped History and change the outcome of situations uh, because of their pursuit. Of peace and their stories have been great, but I got to be honest with you, none of them compare to the greatest peacemaker of all time, and that's the the, our Savior Jesus Christ. That none of them compare to the sacrifice and the amount of peace that He offers. You see, He is the only one that offers a peace not only between people but also between us and God, our Creator, and it's His death and sacrifice that makes peace possible. And so, what the writer of Hebrews is telling um, us—that many of you guys have been with us as we worked through the book of Hebrews—we Majors made it to chapter 12, um, but kind of for, for the first 10 chapters, he's really been deep in theology. He's been really telling you who Jesus is. And then he kind of turns the page and he tells you now that you know who Jesus is, this is the difference that it should make in your life. This is how you should live in response to who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for you. And, and so he spent really the first 10 chapters kind of telling you how you can have peace with God. And then he's going to tell us in these verses we're going to look at today in chapter 12, starting in verse 14, this is what it looks like to pursue peace and to pursue holiness because of what Jesus has done for you. And so if you got your Bibles, I want you to go ahead and turn with Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, we're going to start in verse 14. Short text this morning, 14 through, uh, excuse me, yeah, 14 through 17. And it's kind of interesting that verses 14, 14 through 16 are in one sentence in the Greek text. And then verse 17 is a standalone sentence. But if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and you can follow along with me, or the words will be on the screen beside me. But Hebrews chapter 12, uh, verse 14, starts with this command it says, Pursue peace with everyone and holiness. Without it, no one will see the Lord. Make sure that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up, causing trouble, and by it defiling many. But make sure that there isn't any immoral or irreverent person like Esau who sold his birthright in exchange for one meal. And Finally, verse 17. For you know that later when he wanted to inherit the blessing... He was rejected because he didn't have an opportunity or didn't find an opportunity for repentance, though he sought it with tears. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for today. Uh, God, we thank you for your Holy Spirit that brings us uh, comfort in times of distress. God, we thank you for a Holy Spirit that, that can bring us peace in the midst of all of our chaos, in the midst of all of our storms. God, we also thank you for the Holy Spirit that brings us conviction when we need it as well. God, when we are not pursuing holiness as your text calls for us to do, God, when we're not pursuing after you, God, we thank you for the Holy Spirit and we invite the Holy Spirit in our life to come and correct our path to shape our future from that moment on, Father. So, God, we do call on you this morning, God, to welcome your Holy Spirit in this place. God, whether it be for comfort in the midst of our storms and chaos and for us to pursue peace with that, or God, whether it honestly be for conviction when we have not pursued the holiness and the example that you set before us. God, I pray this morning that we are ready to hear your text. But God, I pray this morning we don't come to this text just ready to hear another sermon, to check it off our list, and then we go about our week. God, I pray this morning, God, as we sit at your feet, as we listen to your word this morning, God, I pray that we are moved to our very core, God that this morning we won't walk out of here the exact same way that we walked in. God, this morning, I pray that there are some of us that are so convicted within our soul that we can't even walk out of here without making the changes that need to be made. God, for some of us, the changes that need to be made aren't in this room, but they're outside of this room. And God, I pray that You draw us to these places. God, that You draw us to these, these moments in time so that we can do what You called us to do, that we can pursue peace with everyone. And God, that we can pursue holiness with you. God, I pray this morning that you speak in a mighty, powerful way this morning. And God, I pray that we are open to it. God, I pray that our hearts are ready to hear your word. God, that we mean the words that we just sang, that your spirit is welcome here, and whether it means comfort or conviction, because it is for our good and for your glory, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. As many of you may be familiar, when you read through the Gospels and, and uh, especially the, the or through the New Testament, especially the Gospels, you'll find Jesus kind of interacting with some different groups of Jews, and 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 they're all Jews. They just have kind of different theological ideas and different political ideas, and and, and it's caused them to to perform and act and do things differently but one of the groups uh, that Jesus interacted with whether frequently uh, was this group that was very adamant about keeping the law they, they studied the Old Testament and they studied it to the T and for them there were 612 613 depending on who's doing the counting different commands in the Old Testament some were like wait we thought there were only ten commandments for them there's 612 or 613 and and so they were so adamant about following these commands to make sure that everyone one of them was followed through to a T, that they even made up their own set of commands, their own set of rules to kind of supplement those that make sure that they weren't getting close to the edge of going over those 612 commands. And so these commands, these these rules that they had were so restrictive. In fact, they were even more restrictive than what's spelled out in the Old Testament. Uh, But these rules governed everything, governed the type of clothes they wear, governed how far they could walk in a day, governed how many animals they could have, governed what kind of food that they were allowed to eat. And so pretty much every aspect of their life was governed and directed by these laws. And so one of the stories in the Gospels is that Jesus is sitting down and he's kind of fielding questions. I, I kind of picture him in our modern day uh, presidential debates of, of town hall meetings where, where he kind of sits there and people get to ask him questions. And, and so one of these guys who's a member of this group, so adamant about these laws, um, asked Jesus this question. He says, listen, Jesus, which one of these laws is the most important all right, now I'm going to tell you a little background in the story because in the story, he's really. this is not a genuine question. He, he's not really seeking the right answer. What he's really doing is he's trying to trap Jesus into valuing one set of laws or one part of the laws more than the other. And so what he's going to try to do is say, hey, Jesus isn't really genuine about following all the laws. He's not really one of us because he only values this part of the law. So his question is not really genuine. It really is to try to trap Jesus. And Jesus knows this. So he doesn't play into this game that this guy is setting for him. Instead, he gives him a very different answer. One that has shaped kind of history. uh, One that shaped purpose of our church and purpose for the Christian life. And some of you may be familiar with the story that Jesus, in Matthew chapter 22, he really sums up all the laws. In Matthew chapter 22, verse 7, Jesus, or he said to him, or Jesus says to this guy that asked him a question, he says, Love the Lord your God. With all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. In verse 38, this is the greatest and most important command. So he gives him the, exactly what he asked for. He didn't give him one of the 612, but you want to know what's most important? Number one is to have a right relationship with God. And then he goes on, he doesn't stop there, he, he adds to it in verse 39. He says there's a second command. Verse 39, he says, the second is like it. To love your neighbor as yourself. In verse 40, all the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. And so Jesus sums up the entire Old Testament, all 612 laws, with these two simple statements. That all the laws center on these two things. That you need to have a right relationship with God and a right relationship with the people around you. And he says, that's it. If you want to know the heart of the law, if you want to follow the law, do those two things. We can sum up the entire Old Testament in those two things. All the prophets, all the law, put them together in those two things. And so this is the major goal of the Bible. This is the major goals of the Christian life, to have a vertical relationship with God that is right and as it should be, and also to have a horizontal relationship with the people around us that is right and as it should be, right? And so some of you are trying to scratch your head like, whoa, I thought we were in Hebrews, and all of a sudden you're in the book of Matthew. right? And I share that story with you because the writer of Hebrews picks up on this exact same idea that in all the laws, there are two that you need to focus on. And he tells us that these are the two goals in verse 14, all right, And so some of you might remember that in chapter 12, he starts off talking this idea about running this race and keeping your eye on Jesus. We talked about that last week. And, and then we get down to verse 14, and he tells us that as we're running this race, as we're keeping our eyes on Jesus, that there are two goals that we need to, to focus on. There's two things that we need to pursue. In verse 14, read with me. He says, Pursue peace with everyone. And holiness. Without it, no one will see the Lord. Now, now, the goal of running is is that we keep our eye on Jesus. But these are the two things that we're chasing after. So, why are these the two things we're chasing after? It's simply because these are the things that Jesus values. In fact, he told us that out of all the commands. This is essential. This is the most important. So if you're going to focus your life, if you're going to give your energy to anything, give it to these two things. Pursuing peace with everyone, having a right relationship with people, but also pursuing holiness, having a right relationship with God. And so it's important that when we have goals, we kind of understand those goals. I don't know if you've ever been given a goal and not quite the, the details of that goal, it's kind of frustrating when that happens. And so we want to dive in to these goals and understand them because if we don't understand the goals, we're never going to achieve the goal. We may even not be running in the right direction of the goal. All right, So I want to look at these two goals for a little more in detail. He tells us the first goal is that we pursue peace with everyone. And the Greek word that he uses here is really this uh, for peace. It's this state of harmony, the, this state of friendship between people. Really, it's this sense of cooperation or kinship. And I love this idea. It's a sense of oneness between a group of people. And so really, this is describing our relationship with other people, that we're to pursue a relationship of peace we are pursue a relationship that that has this oneness amongst us that we feel like we are part of the same group that we're part of this community he says that's what you need to pursue pursue this oneness not that you show up here and you show up there that, that you really are one that you are close together and so he describes this as this peace that we need to achieve but I want you to understand that, that he spent 10 chapters telling you how to achieve that peace. All right? And he's told you in those 10 chapters, it's never going to come by you trying to do the right thing. It's never going to come because a certain political party attains power. It's never going to uh, come through war. It's never going to come through diplomacy. The peace that he's talking about must reside in each one of us. And it's a peace that's only available through Christ. You see, only, the only way that humans will ever achieve peace is when we have peace with God first. You see, I think about this. Every human being that you encounter bears the image of God, right? They were made in His image. That's what the Bible tells us. So I want you to put this together. It's really hard to be at peace with each other if we're warring against the one who we are wearing the armor of. If we're worrying, 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 battling against, fighting against, I can't say the word all of a sudden, if we're fighting against, if we're enemies of the one who we bear his image. Listen, we cannot have peace with each other if we don't have the peace with the one who created each one of us. You see, when I read the news and I hear of all of these stories about all these people who do terrible, tragic things, it's all this devaluing of human life. Why? Because we don't see the value of human life because we don't see it connected to the God who made that person. We don't see them as people. We don't see them as image bearers of God. We just see them as an object just like anything else. And so we devalue them and we do terrible things against people instead of pursuing peace with them. And we're at war with the God who created them, which means that we have to be at war with those who bear His image. Right? To put it in another sense, you cannot fight the nation of Russia without fighting the Russian army. All right? You, you can't say, I'd like Russia, but I really don't like the Russian army. It doesn't work that way. Same is true with humanity. We can't claim to love God and yet hate the people that He made, that He created, that bear His image. And so if we're ever going to have peace with our fellow human beings, then we have to have peace with God first. And this is the second goal that's spelled out in this verse. You see, not only can we have pursuing peace with each other, but we're also told to pursue something else. And this is the relationship with Him. This is We're told to pursue holiness. And this holiness speaks to this relationship of God and our Creator. And I love it because it speaks of being purified. It speaks of being uh, sanctified. And it's the same word that Paul uses in Romans chapter 16. And we like to think this word holiness is used a whole lot of times in the Bible. It's really not, as far as in the New Testament, it's really not used a ton in the New Testament. But in Romans chapter 6, verse 22, I want you to see this because uh, it's used but it's used as sanctification in this verse. And so uh, he says in chapter 6, verse 22, but now, since you have been liberated from sin and have become enslaved to God, you have your fruit, which results in sanctification, the end and the end is eternal life. And so what he's telling us is now that you've been freed from sin, now that you're, your course is away from sin and towards God, this is what holiness is, that you're growing more towards God. Hence the whole picture of Hebrews chapter 12. We are pursuing God. We're chasing after God. We're keeping our eyes on God. This is the race we're running. And I want you to notice that both of these are in the present tense. These are both things that we are consistently told to do. We never in this life will reach a place of peace, nor of holiness. It is a constant thing that we are told to do. And I'm telling you that it doesn't matter if you were saved yesterday or if you were saved 200 years ago. None of you were, but if you were saved that long ago, your results and your goal is still the same. You're to be more like Christ tomorrow than you are today. You're to be more like Christ today than you were yesterday. It is a consistent Constant pursuit that you do. And and so when we pursue holiness, it means that we pursue God. We allow Him to remove the weights and the sins that entangle us. It allows us to, to take on His characteristics. We begin to develop His attitude. We begin to see the world and the people of the world through His eyes and the way that He sees them. And let's be honest, it's also true of the reverse that when the world sees us, they don't just see us, they see Him. Because we've taken on His characteristics and so we become a picture of who he is in every aspect of our life and so the words that we say and post and and the way we treat those that are around us the way that we act when nobody's looking or or maybe the way we act when everybody's looking it should all be a picture of him you see this is what it means to love the lord your god with all your heart with all your soul and with all your mind this is what it means to pursue holiness But I want you to understand that none of that is possible without the sacrifice of Christ. You see, just like we can't achieve peace apart from Christ, we'll never achieve holiness apart from Christ. We will never be liberated from sin apart from Him. We'll never be given to sanctification and grow closer to Him apart from Him working in our lives. You see, this is why the writer of Hebrews ends verse 14 the way he does when he says simply this, that without it, none of you will see the Lord. And he's not telling you there's this certain level of of righteousness that you have to achieve. He's not telling you that you have to have so many good works. He's simply telling you this, that I've spent 10 chapters telling you the only way to get holy and the only way to get peace is through Christ. And if you don't do that then you're never going to have eternal life. You're never going to see the Lord. And so it doesn't matter where you came from. It doesn't matter what tradition you've been following. If your goal is eternal life, if your goal is to achieve holiness, if your goal is to find peace not only with those around you but with the God who created you, the only way to do that is through the work and sacrifice of Christ. And if we don't accept that, then you're never going to have peace and you're never going to have holiness in your life. right? And I share that with you because there are so many people that are searching for what we as Christians have. There are so many people who in and around this world are searching for peace in their life, in their marriage, in their relationship, in their work environment. And if you don't believe me, just read the news from the last two weeks and you'll find people desperately searching for peace and yet taking a terrible course to try to find it. The world is desperate for peace, but they got this idea that they can achieve it some other way except through the holiness of Christ. And what the writer of Hebrews is telling us, listen, these pursuits are the same. That you're not running two different courses. You are pursuing after peace, and you're pursuing after holiness as well. Now, I don't know about you, but one of the most frustrating things in life, and I've kind of mentioned this already, one of the most frustrating things to me is when someone gives you a goal and they give you no direction or guidance on how to achieve that goal. Right? Uh, imagine the frustration for you guys that have kids that instead of taking their end of grade exams at the end of the year, imagine your kid's frustration if they walked in the very first day of school and their teacher said, All right, we're going to take our end of course exams. And your kid's like, Wait, we, we don't have any, we, we just got here. Yeah, no, but you're ready for this. So here it is, right? And you should have known all this stuff already. Your kid would be very frustrated, right? Imagine if you're a builder and someone told you they wanted you to build their dream house for them, right? And all they told you was, I want a house. And this is the size I wanted. But there were no blueprints involved. There was no guidance of this is where walls should be, this is where outlets should be. What if there was no guidance? How frustrating would it be to, to, try, to try to start building something and all of a sudden somebody come along beside you and be like, mm, no, that's not it. I'll share you a quick story. My dad owned a construction company growing up, and so I grew up kind of around construction. And there was a guy who was a very, very wealthy man that we got the privilege of building part of his house. We did the drywall work. And there were two columns in his house. Right? And he, he had these columns hand-carved by these men. And so he literally walked in one day, and he told the uh, we were there, and he told this guy, he said, I just want these columns, and, and I'm just going to trust you to do what you want to. Here's the measure them how you want to, and you just do what you want to with these columns. Right, And that was it. That was the end of the conversation. The guy was like, you're not going to tell me what you want them to look like, what you want them carved, like do you want them round, square, none of that. And the guy said, no, I'm just going to leave that up to you. And so months later, those same carpenters came back and they fit those columns into the exact place. And they were so proud of them. They were so excited about them. And I'm going to be honest with you. I walked in there and I just stood and kind of jaw dropped like these are beautiful. These are the most beautiful columns I've ever seen in a house. And the guy who owned the house had more money than he had sense sometimes. And he walked in and he was like, those are terrible. Take those down. And so those same carpenters who built those things took those things down, and he said, now do them again. And he's like, well, what don't you like about these, and what do you want us And he's like, no, I'm going to trust you. Just do it. Just make these columns. And by the way, I need them quick because the rest of the house is finishing up around you. And so these same carpenters went and made a second set of columns. They put those second set of columns in there. And by now, everything else in the house is done. We're coming to do touch-up work. And the same owner of the house walks in. He's like, no, I don't like those either. Do them again. And so here these carpenters have this goal of building these columns except they have no direction and no guidance, and so they have no idea whether they're on the right track or on the wrong track. It's very frustrating to be in that situation. And for some of you, you know that full well. You know what it's like to be given an assignment. You know what it's like to be told by your boss, hey, here's what you're supposed to do. Except that's the end of the conversation because they don't tell you how to do it they don't give you the guidance. They don't even tell you these are the metrics we're going to use to see if you're doing it right. But fortunately for us, I want you to think um, as as frustrating. Excuse me. As frustrating as that is in a workplace, imagine the frustration if somebody told you just pursue peace and holiness, and that was it. You would have no idea if you were on the right track. Do we have the same idea of what peace and holiness looks like? So fortunately for us, the writer of Hebrews knows that frustration. I don't know if he had to try to build columns without blueprints or ideas or not. But he spends the rest of this verse, and I told you verses 14 through 16, they were all one long sentence in the the Greek text. And then chapter, or verse 17 is kind of this add-on sentence that fits in really well with it. But he spends the rest of this masterly run-on sentence. By the way, kids, don't try to write that as a sentence. Your English teacher will not allow that, okay? It's called a run-on sentence, and I got in trouble a lot for that. Um, But in Greek, you can do that, And so he spends the rest of this sentence, verses 15, 16, and then also verse 17, and tell you how this looks. These are the steps. This is the guidance. This is what it looks like to pursue peace and to pursue holiness. If you're going to do these two things, these are steps that you can take. And so when we look through the rest of this, the first guidance that he gives us if we're going to pursue peace and holiness is to adopt this military mindset that we're going to leave nobody behind. You see the remainder of verse, or the, or excuse me. Let me go back to the first part of verse fifteen. He tells us that we're to pursue peace with everybody in holiness, but then he tells us that you're not to do this by yourself, right? And in verse fifteen, he puts it this way: He says, "Make sure." That no one falls short of the grace of God. Now let me remind you just a little bit the main focus of this letter. That he's writing to a group of Christians who are very young Christians. and, And all of them came out of a different faith system. All of them have come to the Christian faith basically through the Jewish system. But now they found the Christian faith is hard. Now they they have faced with these challenges of persecution so much so that some of them are losing their houses, some of them are losing their businesses, some of them are losing their family, some of them are shunned and thrown out of their family. And so now suddenly this life that they thought was going to be wonderful and easy is not so easy and wonderful. And rubber meets the road, and we've talked about how this is the moments of faith, and this is where you truly test your faith is when it is tested. And so now they're, they're struggling with this idea. And for some of them, they are very tempted to contemplate this idea. You know, life would just be easier if we just went back to being a Jew. Life was easier then. We fit in with people then. We, we were part of the community then, and now we're not. And, and then for some of them, they weren't contemplating going back. But for some of them, they didn't want to go back. They just wanted to kind of step back and blend in. They don't want to stand out as a Christian. They thought if if we could just blend in with the Jewish community, then we won't create waves, we won't be disruptive, and people won't persecute us. They they will still do business with us if they think that we're still Jews instead of Christians. And so let's not be different, or maybe let's go to the synagogue on Saturday, but then go to church on Sunday. Let's kind of have the best of both worlds here for just a moment. And this is what they're faced with. And so as he's telling them this, or as he's writing this letter to him, uh, a lot of them are in, in danger of falling back. and Meaning that they're in, danger of sh- or they're in danger of saying that the sufficiency of Christ is not enough. That what Christ did on the cross is not enough for them. That what Christ did on the cross on His sacrifice was not enough to pay for their sins. They've got to keep doing these sacrifices. They've got to keep doing uh, these laws and these commands and all these things. And what they're saying is that grace that God gave them through the cross of Jesus Christ isn't enough. And so hence the warning that he tells them, make sure nobody falls short of the grace of God. Make sure nobody shrinks back. Make sure nobody falls back into this old system and says the grace of God is not enough for me. The grace of the cross is not enough for me. And so he tells them that kind of the biggest defense for this is that if you're struggling with this, it's to understand that yeah, I know life is hard and I know life is difficult, but I need you to understand you don't have to do this alone. In fact, you shouldn't do this alone, that you're part of a community that can help you so that you don't fall short and you don't quit early. Going back to his illustration of running, he talks about running. And for many of us, running is this individual thing. Running is this individual sport. But when he pictures running, he's not picturing runners that are competing against each other. He's he's picturing runners that are running together as a pack so they can encourage each other and they can move each other along. And I can tell you that back in my younger days when I wasn't a runner and I was in high school, I I was not that lone wolf runner. I I didn't run for the fun of it. I didn't run for the pleasure of it. I really ran in those days to keep in shape for soccer. And the thing that kept me running was the group of people that ran with me. It was much easier not to give up when somebody is behind you pushing you or somebody's in front of you and you're trying to keep up with them. And so this is the picture that he's giving us as a church. None of us should be the long-range single runner, right? You see, if you've ever watched distant runners, the one who starts the race taken off by himself, he's usually not the one that wins the race. Usually the winner of the race is in the middle of this pack, and near the end of it, he takes off and he wins the race because he's been running in this pack and pacing with this pack. See, the pack provides us things that as individuals... We cannot have. Being part of a community has this this joy with it. But it also has this responsibility with it. And it points us back to what he said earlier in chapter 10, verse 24. When he says in verse 10, 24, he says, Let us be concerned about one another in order to promote love and good works. You see, to be concerned with one another, it means that we have to pay attention to one another, to the other members of the community, that we value them and we take notice of them. Now, to take notice of them means we have to take less notice of ourselves. To focus on someone else means we have to focus less on ourselves. And some of you are starting to put together this is how the pursuit of peace happens because I'm focused on someone else and making sure they're with us rather than just me and myself. You see, he didn't picture a single runner in a stadium trying to compete for a prize, he pictured this whole pack of runners going together, pursuing peace together as a community, and so they could run together. And so we focus less on ourselves than we do on the things uh, on each other. And so as we come here this morning and we sing our songs and we hear sermons, and, and the church was never meant to be a place for you to come sing songs, hear a sermon, and get up and walk out. It was always meant for you to be part of a community. That yes, we come to sing songs, but we do that together. We come to hear a sermon, but we do that together because we're doing life together. And It means that when we do this, we don't just sit in, uh, in, in here and we're isolated as islands. That we are part of this community. And so what does it look like to pursue peace with one another, to make sure nobody falls short of the grace? It means that when you look around you and there's been somebody in the seat in front of you for the past three weeks, but all of a sudden this week they're not in front of you, it means you send them a text or call them or email them or you drop a card in the mail or maybe you ask somebody, hey, that chair is usually filled, but they're not here today something must be going on. And honestly, they may be on vacation and that's not a problem. They may have another situation that's going on. But let's be honest, there may be something that you are the one who steps in and say, hey, we loved you and we missed you enough to notice you. And we care enough to notice that you weren't there. And so together we want to make sure that you're not falling short of the grace. And so for some of us it's not just the people that sit around us because a lot of us sit in the same place and so it's easy to know who's sitting in front of you and who sits behind you. But for some of you, you move around. It makes me a little harder to take attendance for some of you, right? I don't. I'm just kidding. I don't don't check roll or anything like that. But for some of us, it may not be the people around us, but for some of us, if you're a member of our church, you have access to this wonderful thing called the Instant Church Directory. And it has pictures of, of almost everybody, but it has names of all of our church members, addresses, phone numbers, email addresses, birth dates, anniversary, tons of information. How about sometime, maybe today, maybe this afternoon, maybe this week, you just scroll through that thing and be like, you know what? I haven't seen that person in a while. And maybe for some of you, you're kind of new to it. You're like, I've never seen that person, right? Those are the real, send them a text and be like, hey, I don't know you, I just saw your picture and I sent you a text, no, don't do that. (laughs) But it's simply this idea that that we don't see people as fringe people. There's no such thing in the community as marginal people. There's no such thing as people who are on the fringe and if they fall off the fringe, then it's fine. When we are part of this community, we care for each other. We concern ourselves with each other so that we make sure that no one falls short of the grace of God. So we have to pay attention to those that are around us. We have to get our eyes a little bit off ourselves and more on the people around us. And so there's all kinds of excuses as to why people don't do this, why we let people fall off the radar and people tell you, well, that's the pastor's job, right? And It is. But it's not only my job, because Hebrews chapter 12 wasn't written just to pastors. And there's other people like, well, I didn't want to bother somebody. I don't want to be nosy. But can I tell you this? That sometimes being nosy for the right reason is what brings somebody back to Christ. Being nosy and letting them know that they were cared for, that they were loved, that they were noticed, that they were valued is what brings them back to the community that God intended them for be part of. And so we have to be people who mutually care not only about the physical health, but the spiritual growth of each other. Now let me give you one other application about this point before I move on from it. Because it's simply this, that I, I do a lot of counseling with couples, right? And I counsel couples before they get married. I counsel couples a year after they've been married. I counsel couples 10 years after they've been married. And I've counseled couples 20, 25 years after they've been married. And I can see the same pattern repeating itself, except for the newlyweds. The newlyweds are totally different, all right? The ones that are getting ready to get married, you cancel them totally different because they haven't figured out that life is not about each other yet, right? But people who get married, and when marriages start to, to run into conflict, is when somebody starts to disobey the first part of verse 15. When they begin to focus more on themselves and less on the spiritual growth or the, the physical growth or whatever of their spouse, When marriage becomes more about me and what I get out of it and what I need out of it or what I don't get out of it and what I don't need out of it versus what I'm putting into it for my spouse. You see, any marriage that doesn't hold to the first part of verse 15, that we're not concerned about leaving our spouse behind, is a marriage that is destined for conflict and struggles instead of one that is pursuing peace you want to pursue peace you want more peace within the context of your home then start with verse 15 start with making sure that no one falls short of the grace of God start with making sure that if you're a man that you're leading your family in the way that they experience the grace and the holiness of Christ and lead them in a way that gets your their eyes off or you get your eyes off of you and onto us and our desires and what our wife needs and what our husband or what our children need and wife the same goes true for you because he's not just writing to husbands here. He's telling all of us if you want peace in your marriage, you want peace in your house, leave nobody behind. Get your eyes off of you and onto the people that you are, are destined to take care of that God has put in your path. in your life for you to take care of. Focus on the spiritual needs of your family and make sure no one falls short of the grace of God. And then I can almost guarantee your house will be much more peaceful than it is filled with conflict. You see, our pursuit of peace and holiness, we need to remember that we are part of this community. And being part of this community has a responsibility that we take on each other. That we care for each other and nobody gets left behind and nobody gets pushed to the side. And when we start to focus on each other, when we start to care for each other in this community, then it makes it easier to do the second thing that he tells us to do, the second principle or guidance that he gives us in pursuing peace, and that's to watch out for the roots. The roots are the things that grow underneath. You see, it's easy to see the plants on the top and the flowers on the top, but when we get involved with each other's lives, we get deeper than that, we get to the roots and what really is in someone's heart. A few weeks ago, I was at Walmart and I had to I had to buy some weed killer. Right? now. Because the economy is the way it is, and just because I am who I am, I don't impulse buy, and I like to I like to shop, and I like to make sure. I, sorry, that, that sounds wrong. I hate to shop except for what I need. Okay, so you're not going to find me just going hanging out in stores. But when I need something, I like to compare. Maybe that's a better term than shopping. I like to compare and make sure that I'm getting the best deal. And so we went to Walmart, and there were, as, as you can imagine, there are several different types of weed killers. There are several different brands, and even within the same brand, there are several different formulas. And so there's every one of them. Has a reason that you should buy this one, right? Like this product, and I don't remember the names of any of them. Said that like it was rainproof in 15 minutes, which would be great if I was worried about it raining in 15 minutes, right? But I'm not, all right. So that one I wasn't worried about. And then this other one's like it promised results within 15 minutes. And I was like, now that's pretty tempting right there because who doesn't like to watch a weed die, all right? Like if I can spray it and watch it die, that's pretty awesome to me. And so it showed this picture of this beautiful, healthy little dandelion and then it had this little slash and it said 15 minutes later it showed it like wilted. But I noticed on that picture just the top of the plant was wilted because then there was this third option. And the third option said that it was specially formulated to kill the roots of the plant. You, you see, and, and, and you went on to read, and so I, this one it was sparked my curiosity because I picked it up and I read about it. And it said, we, it basically said, in, in lack of better terms, that we may not work as fast as others. Like you may not see results in 15 minutes, but we guarantee that the results will last longer than 15 minutes. Because what we do is we don't, take, we don't concern ourselves with the outside of the plant. What we do is we get inside the plant and we kill the roots first. And when the roots die, then the rest of the plant withers away and there's nothing left to grow back. Now, all of us in this room, we know. That you can spend all day long in a garden picking off the leaves of every weed that's in your garden and walk out three days later and they're right back. Why? Because we didn't get to the roots. We didn't get deep inside where the bad stuff is really growing. We just treated the symptoms of it all. And can I share with you that there are so many of us who are trying to pursue peace and we're trying to pursue holiness, except we're just treating the symptoms Of what we see. We're not getting deep inside of each other's lives. And we're not looking out... For the roots that are growing deep. You see the writer of Hebrews understands this. And going back to verse 15. The the writer tells us that if we're going to pursue peace and holiness. Then then we got to make sure we see the roots. And watch out for the roots that are growing deep on the inside. In verse 15. We've read this first part. He said make sure that no one falls short of the grace of God. And here's the new part. And that no root of bitterness springs up causing trouble. And by it, defiling many. The word he uses for bitterness is it's not used very often in the New Testament, but this word describes this something that has a very acidic or very sour taste. So much so that its it doesn't taste good, but it could actually be poisonous or toxic to somebody who ingests it. And so this usually happens on the inside of someone. It takes root when someone has a personal offense or a personal hurt. That, that someone uh, did something that you didn't agree with, or they offended you in some way, or maybe they, they actually did something that caused you uh, mental or emotional harm now i want to be clear he's not talking about an abusive situation here he's not talking about a situation that all of us should be righteously angry over right that's not what he's talking about he's talking about when somebody made a comment 15 years ago and didn't mean it to be offensive but you took it that way and so now 15 years later every time you see that person in the hallway that's the first thing that comes to your mind or anytime somebody brings up their name you automatically go to that comment 15 years ago that wasn't meant to be taken the way you took it, but you took it that way. And so it becomes this personal hurt for you. And so you stored it away. That's the bitterness that he's talking about. That's rooted deep inside of us. It's this idea that, that something has been personally offensive to us. Something has personally hurt us. And we simply refuse to move past it. We refuse to let go of that hurt. And so it doesn't matter how long the, the time frame is. We don't let go of it. And so every time that person's name is mentioned, every time that person and we see them, that comes rushing back. This is the root of bitterness. And that's what he's describing in this verse. Chuck Swindoll, great pastor and talking about this once wrote he said i can't think of a spiritual disease more insidious and more contagious in the church body than bitterness one nasty attitude bearing the fruit of gossip backbiting and slander can spread through a church and destroy the entire thing you see the problem with the root of bitterness is that it doesn't stay a root it doesn't stay buried in the depths of someone's being. It, like everything else, it pushes up to the surface and it starts to produce plants and weeds that spread out through the community. And suddenly what was a root in verse 16 starts to cause problems and defile many. And this word that he uses for defiled is a pretty interesting word. It means to pollute. And so it's simply this, that if you had water and you defile it, it means that you put something that pollutes it that makes the whole thing useless. Right? Now, there's some things that you can put in water, like Gatorade. They don't pollute it. They make it healthy for us. But let me ask you, how much water are you willing to drink if you had drops of oil put in it, if you have drops of gasoline put in it? You see, the pollutant makes a difference. What we put in the water makes a difference. But he also uses this term that not only describes pollution, but it also described this process of staining or dyeing a piece of fabric or something a different color, right? So this is the process that a a shirt would go through when it becomes a uniform for one team versus a uniform for another team. It's dyed, it's defiled to one color versus defiled to another color, right? It's different than those that are around it. And so he uses this word, and it's this beautiful idea, this root of bitterness starts to spring up and it starts to divide the community because suddenly we have different color uniforms, we have different teams, And we have different factions. And so what causes people to to have these factions is this root of bitterness that started in one person and then it grew and it started to spread. And so then I started to die and I started to use this color uniform and this is my team. You see, this is what happens in churches when, not us, you guys watching online, this is not us, right? But it's when this group over here won't sit with this group over here. It's where this group over here wears a different color shirt on Sunday morning because they don't want to be associated with that group over there. It's when this group over here is too busy paying attention to who's sitting with this group, whether they're paying attention they're keeping their eyes on Jesus, that they're not focused on the right thing in the first place. You want to know how bitterness destroys a church? It's simply because it made different teams out of a community, and they cannot function together because somebody took a personal offense, maybe a comment that wasn't meant to be personal in the first place. And all of a sudden, you have this team, and that team, and that faction, and that faction. Instead of seeing ourselves as a community, as a pack running and pursuing peace and holiness together, we see ourselves as competing against each other. Hence, the person running in front, oh, we got to catch them because they're wearing a different color uniform than I am. Instead of being on their tail to encourage them and us running right behind them because we're on the same team. You see, it's really hard to pursue peace with each other when we don't even want to be around each other. When we're too busy spreading gossip and slander and backbiting each other. and We're too busy worrying about what color uniform you're wearing or what color uh, shirt someone's wearing and we forget and take our eyes off Jesus. You see, the real problem of bitterness is that our stubbornness gets in the way of our forgiveness. You see, this is where peace and holiness tie in together. That, that when we are the ones hurt, when we are the ones that are offended, we very quickly lose sight of the grace and mercy that God gave to us. Did you hear me? When we're the ones that are hurt or are hurt, we forget the grace and mercy that was given to us. And for some reason in our mind, we justify that whatever that person said or whatever that person did, it was so much worse than what we did or what we said against Christ. That one comment 15 years ago justifies 15 years of unforgiveness, justifies 15 years of bitterness, justifies 15 years of trying to get back at that person versus a lifetime of your rebellion and sin against him. You see, the cause of bitterness is this personal offense, but the answer to bitterness is the cross of Jesus Christ. Because when we look at the cross of Jesus Christ, you know what I see? That's forgiveness in my darkest moments in my most defiling moments when i was spitting on him when i was cursing him when i was actually an enemy and rebelling and fighting against him that's what he did for me and how dare us think that there's somebody sitting in this room or watching online in your house that doesn't deserve the same grace that god gave you you see the cure for bitterness is the grace and mercy of jesus christ because he gave it to you and if you want the answer for bitterness it's maybe that we stop holding on to it and we start letting go of it. Maybe we take care of the roots and bitterness won't have an opportunity to spring up because we extended the grace and mercy that God showed us. Forgiveness and grace that both we receive and we give will kill the roots of bitterness every single time. And instead of dividing and separating a community, it allows us to be one. But there's one final piece of advice and guidance that he gives us in this pursuit of peace and holiness. And it's simply to avoid the Esau example. Now, some of you may be familiar with the story of Esau. Some of you may not. But Esau is a character in Genesis chapter 25, uh, verse 27. And he is the oldest son of two. He's got a brother named Jacob, but he's the oldest. And so by birth order, he has the birthright. The birthright is the inheritance. means when your father dies you take over as the patriarch of the family, which means all the father's possessions are yours to keep up, to watch over, and you become the one in charge of the family. And it's not just your family, it's the extended family. Right? So your younger brothers become, they're still part of your family, but now you're in charge of them. Right? So Esau, by birthright, by being number one to be born, he has this birthright. Right? Everything that his father has is promised to him. The only problem is he's got to wait till his father passes away before any of that becomes valid. But it's promised to him he's just got to wait for it. Well, many of you know the story of Esau, that Esau was a hunter, and maybe he wasn't a very good hunter, because we read in Genesis chapter 25, or maybe 26, somewhere in there, or 25, that he went out, and he was out in the field all day, and he, he came back home exhausted. And I'm going to guess that he wasn't very successful in hunting, because he comes back in to his brother Jacob, and his brother Jacob is, is preparing this bowl of, of stew, right? And he's so exhausted and so hungry, which means to me to believe that maybe he wasn't that great of a hunter because he wouldn't have been... You might be exhausted, but you wouldn't be that hungry if you were that good of a hunter, all right? But he comes in and he's, he's starving and he's hungry and he looks at his brother and he's like, Brother, please, please just give me a bowl of that soup. Just, just let me have a little bit of that soup that you're prepared. You got this whole pot? Just let me have just a little bit of it. And Jacob, the younger... Maybe conniving younger brother, if you have younger brothers. Some of us are younger brothers. We know how this works. Jacob's like, I'll give you some soup on one condition. You give me your birthright. And so he's like, well, I'm going to die anyway. I'm going to die. I'm, I'm on a deathbed here. Sure, I'll give. What goods are a birthright? And so he gives him his birthright. He gives up all the stuff that was promised. If you read verse 16, it tells you that he traded his birthright. Let me make sure I give it to you, right? Make sure there isn't any immoral or irreverent person like Esau. Here's the part pigeon who sold his birthright in exchange for one meal. Just one meal. All the promises of everything his father had, he gave it up for one meal. Meal. And I want you to see how it describes Esau, immoral and irreverent. Right? Why does it describe him? Because he chose this short-term pleasure over a long-term blessing. He chose this one meal over being given all the meals that he could ever want and ever need. He chose this, this love for the lesser things and the worldly things rather than the spiritual and physical blessings that were waiting just around the corner for him. He chose to take a shortcut in life. And try to get something quick and easy rather than waiting for what was coming. This, this momentary, immediate satisfaction left him with a lifetime of struggle. In fact, if you read on in verse 17, you're familiar with the story. He, him and his brother struggled for years. And in fact, he, they were concerned about killing each other for a while. In verse 17, it says, For you know that later when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected because he didn't find any opportunity for repentance though he sought it with tears. Oh, man, he wished he could take it back. Oh, man, he, he wished that he had a do-over. Oh, he wished that he wasn't so short-sighted. He, he wished if he could have it all over, if he could have it back to do over again. Man, he, he wished he would do it differently. He was so grieved at this one moment in his life that changed everything for the rest of his life. He was so grieved that he sought repentance with tears, but the problem was the result was already handed down. It wasn't that he lost his sonship. It wasn't that he lost being part of the family. It wasn't that he lost salvation. It's simply he lost the blessing. And so for this moment of pleasure, he has this lifetime of regret and this lifetime of conflict between him and his brothers because of this moment of instant gratification rather than something that was great that was already promised to him. So listen, if we're going to pursue peace with everyone, it means we can't value this moment rather than all the moments that are coming. What does it look like to pursue peace and avoid Esau's example? It means when somebody does offend you. When somebody does make you mad. When somebody's done something against you, let me be honest with you, the Esau example is to really just pop it off real quick. To pop off those words really quick. To defend yourself really quick. To hold on to your honor really quick. And to say things really quick. If you just wait just a few moments, you're going to realize how much you're going to regret those things. To pursue peace with everyone means that when you're spouse and you have a disagreement and a discussion about something and it gets heated and you say things like I don't love you anymore and I wish we were divorced and, and I can't believe we're still doing this and I don't want this anymore. And you walk back later and you wish you'd never said that. That's the Esau example because you in that moment valued the, the, the independence of that moment more than the rest of your marriage and all the moments before and all the moments after. For some of you younger folks, it means that you are ready to give that sarcastic answer rather than holding on to it. You're ready just to, to come back with that quick, sharp answer you know that will cut somebody deeply. Or maybe it's sarcastic instead of, uh, instead of listening to the authority that's been placed over you that cares for you. And so it's when we prioritize the things of this world rather than the, the blessings of God. And so, yeah, it may feel good in the moment. It, it may feel like exactly the right thing to do in the moment. But look at the, all the moments that you're giving up after that. The moment you spout off to a teacher. The moment that you have that quick sarcastic comeback. The moment that you, you trade all the peace that's coming for you for this one moment. You see, we devalue everything that comes after that moment because we want what we feels good and looks good to us right now. That's exactly what Esau did. And so if you want to pursue peace, then maybe you bite your tongue a little more. You want to pursue holiness? then maybe you give up the, the worldly pleasures that look so good, that are so temporary, and you start living for things that are all eternal. You stop prioritizing the things of the world and temporary pleasures of the world over the things of God. You see, we're going to miss out, like Esau did, on so many blessings because we didn't wait for God's timing. We took shortcuts and we decided that this looked good and it felt good, and we wanted it in that moment instead of waiting for what God had for us. And he says, don't follow Esau's example. Don't exchange the eternal blessings for this fleeting moment of pleasure. Why? Because you may not lose the sonship. You may not lose the salvation. But you're going to regret it. And you may grieve for it. And you may even seek after it with tears. But the damage is already done. And for those situations, there's no go-backs. There's no do-overs. There's no second chances. This morning, our call is to pursue peace with everyone our call is to pursue holiness with him our call is to have a right relationship with christ and have a right relationship with those that are around us and he spends this whole section telling us these are the steps to do it to make sure that you look out for each other don't let bitterness rest in your heart or someone else's heart and make sure that you don't trade the permanent for the temporary and short-sighted let's pray together